Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 175. In this episode, we're talking about She Deserves Better with Sheila Ray Gregoire and Rebecca Gregoire Lindenbach. Sheila and Rebecca are co-authors with Joanna Sawatsky of She Deserves Better, recently published this year in April by Baker Books, and The Great Sex Rescue, published in 2021 with Baker as well. Team members on this episode from two cities include me, Dr. Madison Pierce. This episode, we are chatting with Sheila and Rebecca about their new book, She Deserves Better. We didn't have a chance to get a copy of it beforehand. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. So we're just exploring some of these things with Sheila and Rebecca, and it sounds absolutely fascinating. I cannot wait to read it. It sounds like it's got some great information for churches, for parents, for people who are leading children or youth ministry. It's really cool. So check out our conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Sheila Gregoire and Rebecca Gregoire Mendenbach. Sheila, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be back. So we're here to discuss your new book, She Deserves Better, which you've co-written with Joanna Sawatsky. So why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about the book? Yeah, so I think a couple of years ago, I was on this podcast actually to talk about my book, um, The Great Sex Rescue, which was based on our survey of 20,000 predominantly evangelical women. And we were looking at how teachings that are really common in the evangelical church can actually end up hurting women's marital and sexual satisfaction. And so the reception of that book was amazing. People were saying, I feel so validated. I feel so heard. This is great. But then what do I do now? Because I grew up with all these toxic teachings. I don't want to pass these on to my kids, but I also don't want to tell my 14 year old, go sow your wild oats, do whatever you want. So (laughs) it's like, it's like, we're just facing this thing where we don't know what's healthy anymore. And so we decided we would just do what we do, which is huge research projects and get to the bottom of it. So we surveyed another 7,000 women for She Deserves Better. And we were looking specifically at how experiences in youth group in church and things that you were taught in youth group affect women long-term, their marital and sexual satisfaction, um, their likelihood of marrying an abuser, their self-esteem and other measures like that. Wow. That's really interesting. And I wonder, could you give us an illustration? I mean, if you're willing to of some of those questions or some of the things that you were particularly asking. Yeah, sure. We were asking questions about, first of all, just like we did for the Great Sex Rescue, we asked about really common beliefs that we see among evangelicalism, um, such as uh, one you might not think of is girls talk too much. We asked if people believed that. Um, we asked if people believed that girls have a responsibility to dress modestly to uh what was it to help the boys not lust after them um, mm-hmm. or to help protect the, the boys from uh, temptation to lust, something along those lines. We asked a lot of, a lot of iterations of the modesty message. Um, but we also didn't just ask about beliefs. We also asked about experiences um, that they had with leadership, with um, maybe problematic or even abusive relationships um, that they witnessed or were a part of with church leadership 
in their youth groups. We asked if they had been sexually harassed as minors in a church setting. We asked those kinds of questions as well to be able to see not only what do those things um what do those things lead to in a girl's life, but also we could say what were those experiences correlated with? What mm-hmm. traveled together? What kinds of churches? What kinds of teachings? were actually correlated with girls being exposed to sexual harassment, being exposed to um, inappropriate relationships between members of the the church uh, clergy and uh, congregants or or something along those lines. We wanted to figure out not just the teaching and the outcome, but also just the culture that we are letting our girls grow up in and figuring out how can we figure out what's a healthy church culture and how can we find the red flags so that we don't only notice it when her daughter's 37 years old is a mom of four kids and is drowning, trying to figure out what's wrong with her marriage. How can we figure this out when she's 13 and we start seeing the red flags at youth group? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really interesting. It, it, what are some of the things that arose out of that? What did y'all find? Well, probably not surprisingly, but the <laughs> modesty messages are highly correlated with girls being abused and harassed in church. So the churches that preach the most about how girls need to cover up because they have a responsibility to keep men from sinning are the churches where men sin. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) Because when we're taking the blame for men's lust or men's abuse or harassment and placing it on the shoulders of girls and women, we're really excusing the behavior. And we're making that church say, hey, abusers, here's a great safe place to hang out because you're not going to be called out. You're going to be enabled. And so it both it both attracts abusers and it, I think, creates abusers by teaching boys that they don't have any self-control. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right, that it's a message for girls in blame, but it's also the case that it's sort of like, hey, this is how we are. We're messed up, you know, come along, <laughs> like, come and join us. You can be messed up here too. <laughs> and so it ultimately does perpetuate that problem and, and attract them. That's really interesting. One of the ones that I find interesting is about that girls talk too much mm-hmm. statistic. So we asked whether or not people believed girls talk too much when they were in high school and whether or not they believe it today. And uh, what we found is that girls who believed that girls talk too much in high school were far more likely to be in a marriage where they do way more housework than their partner, even when they both work outside the home. So let me say that again. So if a girl grows up believing girls talk too much, she's way more likely to marry a man who doesn't carry his weight around the house. So why does this happen? Let's figure this out. Why does it happen? Well, I think that what happens is the idea that girls talk too much, what it's really saying is that you're kind of an inconvenience, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're too loud. Your opinions don't matter as much. You need to be quiet. You need to make room for the boys because you're not making room for other girls because it's girls who talk too much, (laughs) right? You're not just taking up all the space in your small women's Bible study group. It's just in general, girls talk too much than talk more than boys. They talk too much. And so you're training girls to discount their own experiences, to always see themselves as already taking up too much space. And so what happens when they marry a man who agrees? Are the Mm. girls who are taught, you talk too much, girls talk too much, girls need to be quiet, girls need to kind of get out of the way and let the boys do their thing. Are they going to see it as a red flag when a man just wants his wife to kind of cater to him and be kind of in the background and and do all the dirty work for him? Are they going to be able to see that as a red flag when they've already been told 
you're already taking up too much space versus the girls who don't believe that, who are like, no, I I got a voice. I got opinions and you're going to hear them. Um, Is she going to marry? Is she going to be as likely to marry someone who is interested in just kind of having a bit of a, a bit of a servant, frankly, in a, in a wife. Um, I mean, the other thing is men who, men who also agree that women talk too much are also unlikely to want to share the spotlight. Um, and I think that a lot of the stuff with the household tasks that happens with women is it's a lot of that, that background, totally, you're not getting praised for it, labor. No one's like, man, her bathroom spotless on a day-to-day basis. No one's really saying that, right? Like no one's getting an award for making dinner. No wife is getting an award for making their kids lunch. And so if you're already being taught girls deserve less than boys, because that's what this says. Girls talk too much means girls deserve less space than boys, less airtime than boys. It kind of makes sense that girls deserve less convenience than boys. Girls deserve less of a partner than boys do. Girls deserve less because our job is to make sure we are small and not inconvenient Mm -hmm. and that we make the lives of the men around us easier and more convenient. What's kind of funny too is um, when you see where that trope got started. So uh, what if girls talk too much is just simply a truth? Like what if it is actually true? that women talk too much mm-hmm. and that they they take up too much space. So, um, and this is what was claimed. James Dobson in his 1983 book, Love for a Lifetime, I believe the numbers, and I might have this a little bit off, but I believe like he said, women speak 25,000 words a day and men only speak 12,000. So ladies, when he gets home from work, he's already said all of his words and you've hardly said any of yours. So you're going to want to just talk at him, but you need to stop and leave him alone, right? And then Gary Smalley said, women speak 50,000 words and men only speak 25,000. And then Luann Brizendine said, men speak or women speak 12,000 and men speak 7,000. Like the numbers kept changing. Okay. And no one offered any citations. Like no one ever quoted any study. They just stated this. And so researchers noticed and they were like, what's going on? So we better study this. So a bunch of people have studied it over the last 10 years. And all of those studies and meta-analyses have shown that men and women statistically speak the same number of words in a day. There is no difference. Wow. The only time there's a difference is when you're in a mixed group of both men and women in a professional setting or a church setting, and then you need 80% women before women speak their fair share because men speak far more than their fair share. So it's not that girls talk too much. It's that girls need permission to speak up. Wow. That's a really helpful illustration of, and not just how downstream these messages could be harmful, but actually how they're just false. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're built on, on false. Yeah. Wow. That's really striking. We could certainly begin to imagine how these things might relate to some of the instances that you were talking about abuse and um, harmful messages that women internalize, things like that. But can you spell it out for us a little bit? Because some people might say, well, I mean, housework is one thing. Abuse is certainly another. So what are some of the sort of stepping stones that get us from understanding that there are things that people would grant or maybe cultural or imposed or something like that, that are people might say are neutral. And then of course there are these things that are by no means neutral. Mm-hmm. So and and yeah, the sense? housework thing with the girls talk too much, it's funny, but it's also correlated with marrying an abuser. So it yeah. is, it is, it is really dangerous. But yeah. um, I, I think what you'll notice 
when we look at a number of the things that were taught to girls, especially during the purity culture era, so that era kind of from like the mid nineties to maybe around 2015, I think it's still there. It just uses different words, but, but in that 20 year period, is that over and over again, girls were made responsible for men's sins. So whether it's dressing modestly so that he doesn't lust, um, you need to be the one to stop in a makeout situation because he won't be able to. Uh, even Shanti Felden in her book for young women only, which was widely used in Focus on the Family's materials, um, said that if you're if you're wondering if you're disrespecting a boy, watch for anger. So if he's angry at you, it's because you've disrespected him. And there's no caveat there, by the way. There's no caveat about how some boys are just angry and it's unfair. There's no caveat. It's just if a boy is angry, you likely disrespected him. So over and over again, what we see is that men's and boys' sins and, and bad character is placed on the shoulders of girls. And what that does is it tells a girl, if you are with a guy who is mistreating you. If you're with a guy who's lusting, who has a porn problem, who's checking out all the other women, who refuses to go to abide by your boundaries when you're making out and who pushes past your boundaries, that's not a red flag. That simply Mm -hmm. means he's a guy. Mm -hmm. And so girls are taught systematically to ignore red flags, not even to think that they exist. Red flags exist because the problem is this is just the way boys are. And then on top of that, then you, so you have that base that baseline in terms of our, you know, how the sexes interact. But then on top of that, there's a larger doctrinal belief that under that makes it even worse, which is this whole idea that we've had in evangelicalism for a long time, which is the complete death to self in terms of dying to dying to literally even treating myself with an ounce of compassion and respect, mm-hmm. not dying to my, you know, sinful desires, which is what biblically we're called to do. But there are teachings such as the teaching joy, J-O-Y, right? Jesus first, other second, you third. Yeah. Think, but if we actually think about that, if we actually think what it means to teach a girl from as young as three years old, where a song about this is often sang in Sunday school classes, that you are to put yourself under everyone else, anything they want to do, the things that are, that they, that would make them happy, all these things you're putting yourself underneath of literally everyone you're being yeah. taught that before some of them are even potty trained. Okay. Others first, like Jesus first, other second, you last. So you have that. And then you have the other side of it, which is the whole, we don't need self-esteem. We need God esteem, which for some reason, those are seen as mutually exclusive. Like we can't like, like we can't think, yeah, I, I should have rights and I should be treated with respect and dignity. And also I love God. And that's like, those two are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Having self-esteem and understanding who you are in Christ, but they were shown as complete opposites. If you like yourself, you don't love God enough. If you're concerned with self-care and standing up for yourself, you're not emptying yourself out for Christ enough. So you combine these two things of boys can't help it. You have to. And also everyone else comes before you. You need to be the last person in your mind. And if you think about yourself too much, and if you care about yourself too much, you're not a good Christian. And it's not hard to connect the dots there. 
especially yeah. when you consider how many, especially Christian abusive boyfriends call things like, you know, standing up for yourself pride. You know, they'll say, well, you're just so prideful. We hear that all the time. People are in our focus groups who got out of abusive relationships. I thought I had a pride problem. I thought I was being selfish because I couldn't. Why couldn't I just handle the fact that he didn't clean up at all around the house? Why couldn't I? Why was I going so crazy being the only one getting up at night with the kids when I love my children? Don't I love my children? Like this is the kind of double guessing and gaslighting that these women go through. And they've been trained to think to do this to themselves their whole life. And that's why this stuff is so insidious. And that's why we're saying she deserves better because Jesus does not ask us for child sacrifice in service to him. Like that's the opposite. We don't offer sacrifices to Molech, right? That's what Joanna always says, Mm -hmm. our co-author. But Jesus asks us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, not love our neighbor instead of loving ourselves. Yeah. We're supposed to elevate others so that we're all on the same playing field. We're all on the same plane in our mind. And that's the radical love of Christianity because we don't naturally want to do that. Most of us, the world would be a much better place if we actually loved our neighbor, like we love ourselves. Mm-hmm. But if we like pacify our neighbor or enable our neighbor so that they don't need to care about how they're treating us, Mm-hmm. which is what's taught in the J-O-Y mentality and that you need God esteem, not self-esteem mentality. And that mentality of 11-year-old girls need to cover up so the 54-year-old men don't try to look up their skirts. Yeah. That's how we get to the abusive relationships. That's yeah. how we get to enabling men who are predatory coming into these churches and having a safe haven of pre-groomed victims. That's, that's why we deserve better. That's why they deserve better. We can do so much better than this. It's been, it's Mm -hmm. been a travesty. We can do better. Yeah. With that, you're sort of hinting at this, but what is the next part of that sentence? She deserves better than what's the short answer. She deserves better than a church that wants her to be neither seen nor heard. And I think that's what our churches did, right? They said, we can't, we don't want to see you because you need to be modest and cover up. We don't want to hear you because you talk too much. And so, so our churches are best when women are neither seen nor heard. Yeah. Wow. That's striking. And it certainly resonates with some of my experiences growing up. I think that I sort of ran adjacent to some of the most insidious parts of purity culture. I didn't, I experienced some of them, but not all of them. And Um, but it it certainly resonates. I'm wondering, I think I heard you say that part of the book is, is a more constructive proposal, like what, how we can be better. And I'd love to hear some of that. Well, the first thing that we want readers to understand is that this is not an anti-church book. Okay. So our research very clearly found that going to church is good. Believing in Jesus is good. You have better marriages, better sexual satisfaction, better self-esteem. And Honestly, this has been well known in academic research for years. Like psychology mm-hmm. barely even studies it anymore because everyone knows religiosity is a good thing. Okay. Um, so they'll study subgroups like we did, but not overall. However, that being said, our study also found, um, and so did our study for the great sex rescue too, that when you internalize a lot of these toxic teachings, all of the benefits of church disappear And Mm -hmm. our daughters would have been better off not going to church at all and not believing this stuff than going to church and being taught this stuff. Wow. And that is scary. And so our call is just for parents to be aware 
of what is being taught in church. And often our youth groups are so separate from the main church too. Like you don't always know what's going on in youth group and youth group is often run by relatively young people in their twenties. And it's not that young people in their twenties are terrible. I ran a youth group when I was in my twenties. Like I get it. Okay. <laughs> um, and I did a not too bad job too, but often people in their twenties, they don't have a lot of life experience. Mm-hmm. And it's the youth pastor who is the most likely to have someone disclose abuse to them, to have someone yeah. disclose eating disorders, mental health problems. Um, and they're not equipped for that. They're not equipped to handle trauma. <laughs> uh, and, and we got to ask, is this really the best thing for our kids? And so we're asking parents to get involved and to know what's being said. But then also what I think is really practical is in in She Deserves Better at the end of each chapter, we have all kinds of exercises and conversation starters, role-playing games, scenarios to talk through that you can do with your daughter um, or even your son for that, for that. um, We've had a lot of people in our launch team go through stuff with their sons. Yeah, which has been great. We weren't anticipating, but you know what? Go for it. Um, So that you can start helping your kids understand, Hey, this isn't okay. Let's recognize when something is toxic. Yeah. And to reiterate a quick thing is what mom was saying is our research and everyone else's research too is found again, religiosity is great. And what we say in the book and what we really want parents to understand is that there's a lot of people who say, okay, well then I'll just, uh, there's, there's nothing I can do. So I'll just tell my kids the healthy stuff and hope it doesn't stick. What we want to remind people is that if we found that I'm going to give you imaginary numbers here, okay, just to show the law of averages. If we found that on average, people who, you know, don't go to church score like a five on things and people who go to church on average score a seven, that's pretty good. But if a lot of churches are making people score a two, then we've got to find the churches that are scoring nines because something's got to be bringing the average up, right? So what we're trying to tell parents is that if you are at a church that would have, that would score a two, you're not at a normal church. Like that's what we want people to understand. Cause so often when you're in the thick of it, you're being told we're the only ones who understand the gospel. We're the only ones who really know Jesus. This is a Bible believing church and you're at a two. Yeah. Like yeah. you're at a two, <laughs> yeah. like that's sobering. Okay. And again, that's a fake number, but this is the, to yeah. get the idea across. And what we want parents to have is, is just this feeling of hope that if you're in a church that you're constantly having to kind of defend your child against what they're being exposed to, or if you're worried about that, or if the people around you are saying stuff like, Oh, did you see what that girl was wearing? I can't believe she's in grade eight and trying to dress like a hooker. Like you hear this stuff. If you're in that kind of environment, you need to know this is not normal. This is not your only choice and that there are other places that you can go. And you might have to look outside of what's normal for you. But if you're at a two church, don't settle for a two church. Your daughter deserves better than a two church. Okay. There are churches out there that are seven, eights, nines, you know, maybe even tens. I don't know. We'll, we'll get there eventually, but that's, that's really what we want people to understand is that our intention is not to tell people that the church capital C, you know, holy, like the holy Catholic church and as in the apostles creed, holy Catholic church, we're not saying that's a bad thing. What we're saying is that you may have been lied to. Yeah. You may have been lied to and been told that this church that says that children are stumbling blocks to grown men sexually. This church that says that, you know, boys just can't help it. The church that says that girls deserve less than men. This church that says that Jesus trusts women less than he trusts men. Those kinds of churches, 
they're not the only ones out there who, mm-hmm. who really want to serve God and you have freedom and the ability to do better by your daughter. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. And, um, and it's wonderful to hear that a big part of what you're doing in the book is simply to educate and to provide some sort of, I mean, what could be red flags or, or even, you know, yellow flags or, or however, I mean, a red flags, a red flag. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really important because a, a lot of times, um, my in my experience, people are willing to sort of write things off to say like it's well intentioned or, uh, well it's fine, you know, or they're from a different generation or you know insert whatever excuse here, mm-hmm. and what you're doing in the book is showing that these bad ideas have really horrific consequences Mm -hmm. and they're, they're not okay to overlook. Um, so I really appreciate that a lot and, um, and hope that, that it's well-received. Yeah. One of the funny things about a lot of these bad ideas too, is that so many of them are perpetuated by women. Yeah. Um, and that's, that can be surprising, but the modesty message, I think most of the time that you heard it as a girl, Becca was, it was from a woman. Mm -hmm. Like I remember once when Rebecca and her sister were on a praise team as teenagers and an elder's wife told them, you know, don't wear a skirt when you're on praise team, because the men in the front row might look up your skirt, but the only men who ever sat in the front row were the elders when serving communion. So Mm, (laughs) what exactly are we afraid of? And it, that is very common over and over again. It is women who often spread these messages. It's women who wrote most of the bad books that we, that we looked at for, um, for She Deserves Better. And you can ask, okay, why is it that women are spreading these messages? Well, we actually measured it. So <laughs> we took a look at adults who believe girls talk too much or adults who believe the modesty message. Um, because most people who believed it as teenagers have deconstructed it and like, no longer believe it. Today. A lot of people. Millennials wow. were more likely to believe it as teens and less likely to believe it as adults. So millennials deconstructed it huge. My generation, Gen X and boomers have not destructed, have not deconstructed it as much, but they also didn't believe it as much as teenagers. Mm-hmm. So kind of interesting there. Um, but when you look at the women who do believe the modesty message, they are more likely to be in bad marriages. They're more likely to be in abusive marriages. They're more likely to be in marriages where the husband uses porn. And what you have to wonder how much of the women spreading these messages is really about their own pain and their own negative situation and not wanting to admit to themselves that their husband is the problem. And so Mm -hmm. wanting to blame all the women around them. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that every single woman who, who spreads this message isn't a bad marriage. They're just far more likely to be. Mm-hmm. or to yeah. have had like or what about even just negative experiences as a teenager mm-hmm. like what mm-hmm. if it's a, a grasping for a false sense of control to make sense of what happened mm-hmm. there's a lot of explanations um, of why women are the ones who perpetuate this quite frequently to young girls and all of those reasons really point to us having you know a lot of compassion for the women in your child's Bible study who said something that really she shouldn't, but also it's like, maybe we don't let her run the child's Bible study then yeah. because maybe she doesn't understand that she has some stuff to work through before she's fit, fit to be a teacher of young girls. Yeah. And I, I also wonder how it fits with some of the socializing um, around competition among women. 
Mm. Um, you know, if, if, um, if you perceive another woman to be a barrier between you and your spouse, your husband, um, then, you know, that, that creates this sort of, um, hostile dynamic. And so again, I, I, you know, similar to what you said, it can't be the husband. That's the problem. Um, but it could certainly be her. Well, that's actually kind of one of the things we measured. We measured whether or not Mm. they are comfortable with how their husband looks at other women. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Right. Mm -hmm. So they, so women who believe these things, I believe were more likely to be uncomfortable with how their husband looks at other women. So exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. seeing, it's saying, okay, so my husband looks at the women. So I can't face that he has a wandering eye. So I'm going to blame the women for wearing that dress. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that you're conducting this study about how women are poorly treated within the church and you're writing it to the church and you are writing it as women. <laughs> and- <laughs> That may be a can of worms that you do not want to open, but so I can simply just say, thank you. <laughs> um, but if you would like to reflect on that, then I would certainly love to to hear some of what that's felt like, um, because uh, it sounded sh- like Sheila, that you um, had experienced some people thinking that you were attacking the capital C church. And you said mm-hmm. a little bit about that as well, Rebecca. Well, this is, I, I, you know, it's interesting because when great sex rescue came out, we had a lot of backlash. Um, mm. So that was our, that was our first big book. And we were really naming a lot of big names in evangelical uh, marriage writing, like Emerson Egrich, Stephen Arterburn. So love and respect every man's battle, power of a praying wife. Like some of these really big books we found were very destructive. And we did have a number of lawsuit threats. We had um, a focus on the family scrubbed me from their website. Um, the Association of uh, of Amer- no, the American Association of Christian Counselors has has re- refused to have us speak. Like it's 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 been interesting. Um, when this book launched, we've actually been really surprised. It did so well. It it sold better. We always thought Great Sex Rescue would be the big seller. Um, but she deserves better has sold so well. And it's not that anyone big in the evangelical community has embraced it. It's that women want better. There's Mm. such a grassroots movement towards we need to do better for the next generation. And there's a hunger for resources on how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is such a groundswell of people that are not happy with the current state of evangelicalism, with the sex abuse scandals in so many different denominations, um, with the fact that women are not allowed, that their opinions just don't count Mm -hmm. and their leadership skills don't count in so many different denominations um, and that women are sidelined and people are sick of it. Mm-hmm. And we just want better. And I think this is a rallying cry. And for the first time in a long time, I felt hope. <laughs> like I felt like for Good. most of the last couple of years, I've had my head down and I'm just, I'm just blazing ahead. I'm it, it's sort of like those football practices where, you know, you're just, you're just pushing so hard against the line. Um, and I felt like that's what we were doing for years. And now it's like, oh, wow, people are actually really embracing this. So we're mm-hmm. kind of feeling like, like we're just coming out of, we're two weeks out of launch. I don't know when this is going to land, but it's, it's, it's two weeks today since it launched and it's just doing great. And it's like, wow, I think people want change. You know, mm-hmm. people want change. 
I think what's been so encouraging for me is I grew up, I I think we grew up in very similar time. It seems Um, we, I grew up with the whole, you know, it's a relationship, not a religion kind of Christianity, the whole make a, like have your, make your faith your own, like read the Bible, get like fall in love with the Bible, read everything. And what I really think that we're seeing is the unintended fruit of that teaching, uh, so all of these yeah. people in the higher ups in these these circles that were very anti women equipped women really well to know the Bible. <laughs> like they <laughs> they taught us how to pray and pray hard. They taught us how to fight for what is right. They taught us to make our faith our own. And uh oh, here we are. <laughs> we realize that I think that what's happening is especially in our generation, especially among millennials, we don't care what the powers that be have to say about who Jesus is. We only care about what Jesus has to say about who Jesus is. And so when we hear someone saying, you know, hey, maybe rape is bad and shouldn't be excused. And then people who we're supposed to respect say, ooh, they're doing this the wrong way. I think people are finally saying, no, no, I actually just think that we shouldn't be excusing assault anymore. And I think that this is a bad thing. And I think that what we, what, what I'm so happy about is that it's just lovely to see what they worked for so hard to keep women silent being the very thing that's giving women a voice, which Mm -hmm. is the love for scripture, the love for Jesus, the belief that Jesus wants to have an individual relationship with each and every one of us, and that it's less about the religious institution and less about the religious order and more about being the hands and feet, the heart of Christ. And we're doing that and they don't like it. And I guess all I can have to say is you, you made your bed (laughs) and it's now lying it. (laughs) Like, guess what? We have a voice and uh, you trained us to have it because you pointed us to Jesus. And so even when we saw them turning away from the way of Jesus, there was a whole generation of people who were ready to take up the mantle. Yeah. I love that you're express or you're articulating that in terms of us pushing back is actually, um, an expression of faithfulness. Um, it's a, it's as a result of actually knowing the word and knowing who God is, because that's what always strikes me is, um, if, if God reflects that, then yeah, I have, I want no part in it, but I know God and I know what he's like, Mm -hmm. and he's nothing like what those messages express about him. And so it is, it's that time in the word and knowing the Lord that actually pushes me away from the messages that I received when I was younger. So anyways, I really appreciate the the way that you framed that, Rebecca. (laughs) I think one of the other things that um, the evangelical church has done for a long time. So this, this may be predated purity culture, because a lot of the stuff we wrote about purity culture really related to Joanna and Rebecca. And that was their, their big heart cries about the modesty messages, the lack of consent teaching, the lack of sex ed, um, you know, the, the be embarrassed of your body. Don't ever kiss before marriage. Like those messages are what you guys heard. What I heard, and you guys did too, but this was very much when I was younger is don't trust your feelings. You need to stand on faith. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You know, so mm-hmm. remember that um, your feelings aren't important. What matters is logic and what you believe and standing on faith. Um, and we made emotions into this terrible thing. When when my girls were small, I had this um, this uh, uh, 
DVD or no, I guess it was even a VHS tape of songs for little Sunday school songs for kids. And one of them was, if you're happy and you know it, and you know, if you're happy, you know, it clap your hands. If you're happy, you know, it stomp your feet. If you're happy, you know, it shout amen. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, you know, um, clap your hands. And a couple of years later, we went to this play group in a secular public school and they sang the song too, but they sang it totally different. They did. If you're happy, you know, it clap your hands. If you're angry and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're sad and you know it, cry boohoo. You know, if you're excited and you know it, shout hooray. hooray. And I thought, oh, wow, we're allowed to have emotions other than just happy. But this was what we had taught our kids. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. And so, (laughs) you, you know, the perfect Christian girl is the one who looks happy all the time, no matter what. And if you are not happy, that is a problem to me. And as parents... We can do our children a real disservice when we don't teach them about emotions and when we make their emotions seem to be a problem. Um, And it's so common. There's a a term that I learned while writing this book. Joanna taught it to me uh, about spiritual bypassing, where um, you, you, you maintain distance and you create distance because you don't want to enter into a real conversation by using spiritual platitudes. So if she's, you know, your, your daughter's upset because she's got a zit on her nose at picture day and you say something like, well, you know, don't worry because God has everything in his hands or, you know, you know, or your child is sad because she doesn't have a lot of friends. And it's like, well, don't worry because God knows every hair on your head. And it's like, yes, that is true, but that's not what your child needs right now. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges as a parent is how to enter into your kids' emotions and actually validate their emotions um, and still put them in the proper place. Like you want to teach your kids how to handle their emotions well, because as teenagers, their emotions are huge. They don't know how to handle them. <laughs> and, and you want to teach them that. But often what we do is we deny them, especially girls, the right to have any negative emotion. You need to always be happy, always be joyful. You want your daughter to be able to understand her emotions and recognize her emotions because it is her emotions that are her spidey senses that something's wrong in her life. So if she can't acknowledge, wow, I am feeling really anxious right now, or wow, I'm really uncomfortable in this situation, then is she going to notice when she's in a toxic work environment? Is she going to notice when she's in an abusive relationship? If she has taught herself that, no, what I'm feeling doesn't matter. It's only what other people tell me is right that matters. It's only what I believe that matters, not what I feel. Then she's not necessarily going to recognize red flags. Mm -hmm. Is she going to suppress all of her uncomfortable emotions into anxiety or something so that it's always a her problem? It's never a, they're making me uncomfortable as I'm just anxious. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that coheres with some of what we were talking about earlier, where blame is shifted because if men are permitted to be angry, you know, because we're disrespecting them. Um, but women are never able to have that kind of corresponding response. Mm -hmm. Then there's, there's just such a higher expectation. This is a, a funny thing that I think comes out in some of these discussions of, of culture and men and women is, um, you know, some people, talk about women as being irrational and unable to control their emotions and all of that. When really what we've been socialized to do is to control our emotions to an incredible degree, um, beyond what is healthy at all. 
Um, and so I just find that to be a sort of ironic result of some of what we experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like when a woman gets angry, she's accused of being irrational. Yeah. Yeah. When a man a- gets angry, he's passionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sheila, Rebecca, thank you so much. Um, I would really love to keep chatting with y'all and, mm-hmm. and reflecting on even just our experiences together. But before we go, I wonder if y'all could maybe give us just one practical thing that you would like people to start doing today. I want moms and dads to know that information, there is no downside to it. The more information you give your kids, especially about sex ed and their bodies changing and puberty, et cetera, the better it is for them long-term. Like the, the stats were, were astronomical. So we, we gave women a set of 10 words and we asked them, how many of these words could you define when you graduated high school? They were all sex ed type words. The more words that women knew, the more that they understood consent and date rape, the less embarrassed they felt of their periods, the better their self-esteem was long-term, the less likelihood they were to marry an abuser, the less likelihood they were to have multiple sex partners. Like there was no downside. And yet what we did as an evangelical church is we replaced sex ed with simply don't do it. And we never taught about consent because you don't need to teach about consent if kids aren't supposed to be doing it at all. And it led to some really disastrous outcomes. So just, you don't need to do it perfectly. I did, I, I did the sex talk so badly with both Rebecca and my daughter, Katie. I messed up. I was silly. And it didn't matter. You don't need to do it perfectly. You just need to be able to talk to your kids. Because we just had a relationship where I had come back to them at 13, at 14, at 15. They could ask me questions when they were 16 and 17. That's all that you need. You just need that open relationship. So you don't need to be perfect. It's okay to feel awkward, but don't stop talking. Mm -hmm. And use the actual terms for things. Make Mm -hmm. sure that your daughters know what's going on. Because it it does. The biggest one that we found is the more sex ed terms that they knew. Um, and and yeah, the the less embarrassed they were about their bodily functions. Mm-hmm. You know, so the practical tip we have is don't shy away from actually using proper terms and actually talking about yeah, things. Like at graduation, high school graduation, girls are more likely to know the world's words for male anatomy than for female anatomy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's just not do that. Let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> it makes girls more likely to be abused if they don't, mm-hmm. if they don't know the words, let's not do that. Let's just talk, talk to your kids, talk openly, give them information. There's no downside. Yeah. And it might feel yeah. weird to talk to your kids about a lot of this stuff, but it's better to hear it from you. And so they aren't, you know, brought into a bad situation, not knowing what's waiting for them. And again, if these conversations are scary, we have lots of tips and and actual um, discussion questions and scenarios and lists that you can work through. And she deserves better to make it easier. Uh, Fantastic. Well, it sounds like an incredible resource. I can't wait to engage with it. So (laughs) thank you so much, Sheila, Rebecca. This has been an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. 